Business Power Hour. Well, it's a warm welcome to you. It's Tuesday, the 11th of January, 2022. Get ready for your hour of power. I'm Alec Hogan. With me in studio is Michael Apple here in Johannesburg and then in our virtual studio coming to us from the mother city, Justin Rowe Roberts and Nadia Swat. Well, Michael, you had quite a story that you we spoke about last night on the Power Hour. Those guys throwing away 10,000 rands uh, worth of champagne. It's gone pretty viral around the internet today. The profits of profits. The profits uh, of profits. Yeah. I mean, how good is that? That's, a, that? that's what the tagline we should have used yesterday. Mm. What have you been busy with today? Well, the gift that's going to keep on giving is the Zondo Report. The first edition is out. I spoke to uh, John Endres from the Center for Risk Analysis. Uh, what did they take from it? What are some of the standout points for them? And what should South Africans expect from the body politic, the ANC and the National Prosecuting Authority? So lots of Zondo reports. How many? 800 and- 874 pages. That's volume one. That's volume one. And we've got volume two, volume three still to come, hopefully yeah. by the end of February. Uh, yes, that's correct. Uh, are you then using it as nighttime reading uh, or is it daytime reading? Is it, uh, in other words, is it easy to read or really heavy stuff that you've got to look through with a pencil? So it, it depends. For some of the witnesses, I was there and I can remember exactly what they said. So a lot of the report is a summary of their testimony and then a finding in some cases, I can skip through because I, I was there and I listened to their testimony. Other cases, I, I may have been sick or one of my colleagues is covering it. That you now need to sit and it is, it's, it's, it's a piece together job to try to figure out. And as I've mentioned before, corruption, it's very nature is it's supposed to be difficult to understand. And, and it's, it's no much easier. Uh, looking at words on a page, trying to figure out a wave of corruption. It's not, it's not easy. Justin, you've also been busy today. Yes, David Bacher from Corian Capital. Corian publishes an informative summary of asset class and fund for performance reviews every month. So we had a look at December, which was another good month for equities. And we look ahead at 2022, what to expect, where to put your money into 2022. Uh, there's a lot of talk about high valuations, especially in the US. We've seen growth come off. So David goes into that growth into value rotation, which is going to be an interesting topic, especially for the next few months ahead. David Shapiro uh, spoke on a similar theme when you chatted with him earlier in the week. Do the two of them agree? Yes, it seems that this emerging tech, those tech companies that aren't yet profitable have been hammered, yet uh, the big hitters, the fangs, the likes of the Apples, the Microsofts and the Amazons, the ones that are nestled in the business portfolio continue to succeed just because they're generating those huge cash flows and they've got so much optionality with that money. I used to call it the gorilla game. In fact, I think there's a book about that, that in tech, if you're the gorilla, you just get bigger and bigger. You get outsized benefits and certainly Amazon, Apple, uh, some of the other uh, big hitters uh, are enjoying the best of those worlds. But I guess also on the emerging tech companies, that's going to be the the challenge to find the ones that that are going to come through this period and stronger than ever. Exactly. And given all the hype with the emerging tech and we saw the great rise and now the great fall, I've done some more research into these American innovative businesses. Truly very interesting. But what, especially after the dot-com bubble, few survive. So picking the winners is a, is tough. And we see that with um, all their share prices coming off. Also in tonight's program, uh, Stephen Nathan. He doesn't focus on the tech story, though. Just to remind you, the Power Hour is a highlights package of what you can get on Biz News Radio. So if you go onto Spotify or iTunes and you ask Google to show you where Biz News Radio is, you will get the full interviews. For instance, Stephen Nathan, you'll hear about 10 minutes of our discussion today. But if you would like to get the full interview then go on to the Biz News Radio channel on Spotify and you'll be able to hear something like 19 minutes. Similarly, uh, another terrific interview was with Clem Sunter, the doyen of, uh, of uh, scenario planners, and 
He unpacked for us what 2022 is likely to be. Again, tonight, you'll get about 10 minutes uh, of that. If you want to hear the full discussion, then go on to the Biz News channels on Spotify and iTunes. Without any further ado, I guess it's time now to get to the markets. Rightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Nadia Swart has been waiting patiently to tell us what's in the news headlines today. A South African court has charged a man suspected of starting a devastating fire that gutted South Africa's parliament with terrorism, adding to robbery and arson accusations as he made his second appearance in court on Tuesday. Sandile Christmas Mafe, aged 49, was arrested near the Parliament complex after the fire broke out on January 2nd and appeared in court three days later. He was initially charged with breaking into Parliament arson and intention to steal property, including laptops, crockery and documents, before the new terrorism charge was added on Tuesday. The blaze broke out in the Cape Town complex before dawn on January 2nd, spreading to the National Assembly, the roof of which collapsed. Protesters outside the court building demanded his release saying he was being used as a scapegoat. Defence lawyer Dali Mpofu said that Mafia was last week taken for mental observation and diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. After the State of the Nation address next month, Parliament will continue sitting in the parliamentary precinct, moving to the Good Hope Chamber, which was spared in the fire. The Sona and post-Sona debates will take place in Cape Town City Hall. There have been calls to use the damage caused by the fire as an opportunity to move Parliament to Chwane, However, this is not an option being considered at present. Fixed fees and electricity price hikes are making life for Joburg residents hell when it comes to affordable power, with a price comparison showing that postpaid residential customers in the city are getting a raw deal. The two fixed charges in the city, a network charge and capacity charge, now total 825 rand a month, meaning residents get barely any power with a monthly spend of 1,000 rand compared to other major metros. Prepaid customers in the city, however, still receive the best deal for now. The city has made several attempts at introducing fixed monthly fees for prepaid users as well, but this has not yet been implemented. Now it's back to Justin for the market report. The JSE All Share Index was up at 74,200. In the currency markets, the rand was slightly weaker against all the major currencies to 15 rand 62 cents to the dollar, 21 rand 21 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 70 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,807 an ounce. The Kruger Rand will cost you around 30,000 Rand. Brent crude is flat, trading at $80.80 a barrel, and the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 650,000 Rand. In the financial news, embroiled JSC listed sugar refiner Tongard Hewlett is going after former executives for cooking the books between 2011 and 2018. The accounting irregularities, which have eroded more than 10 billion Rand in shareholder value, are regarded as South Africa's second biggest corporate fraud behind Steinoff. Peter Stauder, Murray Monroe, Sean Slabbert, and Michael Danton, all members of the executive management team during the period in question, have been implicated. It was a wonderful name of the uh, mentally uh, challenged, supposedly terrorist guy who set fire to the building. Is it really Christmas? Is that his second name? That is his second name. Sandile Christmas Mafe. So Sandile must have been been born on on the twenty fifth of December, uh, I guess in a different. One, one would hope hmm. so. Otherwise, it could be you know. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to know what alternative reason there there is. But <laughs> well, if you've ever met a Noel or a Nolene, the chances are they've also been born on the twenty fifth of December. It's actually a bit of a giveaway uh, sometimes. Oh well, as long as the father's name wasn't No and the mother's name was Lean, because <laughs> that's that's the worst thing parents can do. <laughs> This daily market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Tuesday, January 11th, and this is your FT News Briefing. The Federal Reserve's second-in-command has resigned. Companies kicked off the new year with a frenzy of bond issuances, and U.S. banks are said to report, yep, more record profits. Plus, the U.S. waged a war on drugs for five decades. Now, it's shifting to a softer approach. 
I think what's driven this shift and this pivot in U.S. policy at state and federal level towards harm reduction is really the extent of the crisis here. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Fed Vice Chair Richard Clarida is stepping down from his post just as his boss, Jay Powell, is set to appear before U.S. lawmakers. Clarida's departure comes after recent disclosures show he'd been more active in financial markets at the beginning of the pandemic than he had previously divulged. Clarida is the third senior Fed official to resign in the past few months. They all came under scrutiny for personal trades they made as the central bank was actively loosening monetary policy back in 2020. Clarida will leave the Fed on Friday, just weeks from the formal end of his four-year term. Jay Powell is scheduled to appear before Congress today over his renomination as head of the U.S. Central Bank. Companies are eager to raise money before central banks raise interest rates. In the first week of this year, they raised more than $100 billion on global bond markets. It's not a record, though. It's still trailing behind last year's blockbuster start. But U.S. deals reached a record pace. Most have been banks and foreign financial institutions issuing in the U.S., but bonds are also issued by blue-chip names like MetLife and the heavy machinery maker Caterpillar. In the lower-rated junk bond market, Cruise operator Royal Caribbean launched one of the first deals this year with a $1 billion bond. U.S. banks are starting to report earnings, and we're likely to see more of the stellar performance we've seen throughout the pandemic. Profits for 2021 are set to hit record highs thanks to a surge in investment banking fees. Banks have also been releasing the financial cushions they set aside at the start of the pandemic in case of mass loan defaults. That money boosted profits as well. Our U.S. banking editor, Josh Franklin, says earnings are expected to slow a bit this year, but Wall Street remains bullish. And the biggest reason for that is because of the rising interest rate environment that we're anticipating for 2022. Um, so this will really mean that banks will be able to make loans at higher rates than they have been able to do. And that's something that banks are, are eagerly anticipating for sure. During the, the pandemic, um, because there was all of this kind of rush of stimulus from the Fed and from the government, bank deposits really did swell during the pandemic. I think in the last two years, JP Morgan, which is America's biggest bank, saw its number of deposits it's increased by more than 50% to, to almost $2.5 trillion um, or towards the end of 2021. So banks really do like to you know, use these deposits to make loans, but they haven't been able to do that nearly to the degree and at the rates that they would have liked to. So they're really geared towards being able to make loans in a rising interest rate environment. So Josh, what else are you looking out for as U.S. banks start to report this week? Two areas I'd, I'd flag. One is um, just on loan demand. Um, so because um, companies had been able to borrow and raise so much money um, during the pandemic because markets were so accommodating, they haven't needed to um, take out as many loans from banks in 2021. Um, but there's an expectation that that will improve in 2022. So corporate lending is going to pick up. So what banks saw in the fourth quarter and what they're expecting to see uh, in 2022 is going to be interesting there. And then also uh, just on compensation, um, you know, it really was a uh, a banner year for investment banking fees. And a lot of that money is going to go into the pockets of the investment bankers. So they will be expecting to get paid um, big bonuses this year. So it'll be interesting to see kind of how the rise in compensation tracks with the rise in investment banking fees overall. Josh Franklin is the FT's U.S. banking editor. The U.S. government has waged a war on drugs for five decades. Through that time, overdose deaths soared. Last year, they hit a record 100,000. The war was all about enforcement and incarceration. But the U.S. is shifting away from that. We're seeing states legalize marijuana and adopt other strategies. One new effort has become especially contentious. The FT's U.S. pharmaceutical correspondent, Jamie Smith, joins me now to talk more about this. Hey, Jamie. Welcome to the show. Hi. So, Jamie, you've been writing about something called supervised injection sites. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yes. Yeah, so supervised injection sites are really a key part of this harm reduction strategy. And what they do is they provide a safe location where drug users can attend. They can bring their stash of 
typically an illegal drug. They can get it tested to see what's in it. And they can consume these drugs in a monitored setting with often uh, health professionals or people present who are able to intervene and reverse overdoses if they, you know, if they happen. In Canada, for instance, they say that since they started introducing these sites several years ago, they have intervened and saved thousands of lives, you know, through reversing these overdoses. Um, so they're a very important sort of new policy, which the U.S. is looking to introduce. Jamie, what are the economics of harm reduction strategies versus something like enforcement, you know, police arrests, incarceration, things like that? I think what the last 50 years has proven is that vast sums of money that are spent on policing and particularly in terms of incarceration of people in prisons just haven't worked. So I think what we're seeing is that state authorities and federal authorities are beginning to look at how prevention, education and harm reduction can cut costs. And there have been some studies done which show that uh, for every dollar spent on supervised injection sites, it's more than $2 return in terms of the fact that you don't have to spend so much money on health, you know, these uh, interventions, emergency interventions to save people from overdosing, the chronic health problems that they develop if they have an episode or an overdose. So I think it's a bit of a no-brainer in terms of education and prevention and even harm reduction that it's actually going to save money. So why is this strategy politically controversial? Yeah, so what's happened is that some Republican uh, politicians have targeted these sites and said that they actually encourage drug use. This came to a head a couple of years ago when under the Trump administration, the attorney general in Pennsylvania took a case against a safe house Philadelphia project, which was planning to set up the first legally sanctioned supervised injection site in the US. That lawsuit was successful. So that really um, set back the whole prospect of introducing these supervised injection sites in the US. However, what we've seen is that in New York, they've opened two supervised injection sites, which city authorities have backed. They are operating and they say they've reversed already over 50 overdoses. So these sites are operating at present. However, they're operating under a gray area because they're actually contrary to federal law at the minute. So it's brewing into a big battle. How about the White House, Jamie? Where, where does it stand on all this? This puts the Biden administration in a bit of a tricky spot because the Biden administration has really embraced harm reduction strategies and it has begun to look at whether supervised injection sites should be funded and introduced on a national scale, but it hasn't taken a decision on this yet. And really what we're looking to see is will the Biden administration embrace these supervised injection sites or is it too much of a political risk to do so? Because it's likely to face a very strong backlash from conservative and Republican elements. Jamie Smith is the FT's US pharmaceuticals correspondent. Thanks, Jamie. Thank you. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Well, it's our first opportunity of the new year to uh, touch base with Stephen Nathan, founder of 10X, uh, one of South Africa's smartest investment uh, minds. I hope you had a good break in the a holiday season and have come back all refreshed and able to guide us even better in 2022. Uh, well, I hope so. So I, I'm definitely am refreshed. And I think, uh, you know, it's amazing emotionally and psychologically how we work as human beings. We kind of put a, a flag in the ground and say it's the end of the year. It's the end of a chapter for better and for worse. Uh, the time to relax. And it's always nice to relax when the whole world is relaxing. 
the news flow is slow, so you don't feel like you're missing anything. Um, but definitely, I'm optimistic and uh, hoping for a much better year all round. Stephen, what keeps you awake at night? Well, in a South African context, I think the issue really is around uh, uh, the confidence in the country, which is primarily driven uh, by you know uh, the views towards government and the safety of its uh, uh, of its citizens. So, if we look at uh, safety and also the well being. So, you know, if you look at, you know, other side of the spectrum, I think the, the people that are financially uh, well off or financially comfortable, you know, they're sort of looking at, uh, you know, safety. Am I going to be safe? Are my children going to be safe? Is this going to be a country that, uh, you know, uh, we can live a good life from a safety perspective? And on the other end of the spectrum, it's really about, you know, do we have basic, you know, do we have an opportunity in South Africa for us to have jobs? and to have a decent standard of living. You know, and government's got to address both of those. And what we saw in the July riots, you know, uh, obviously there was a, a, a political element to that, but, uh, but there were a lot of dissatisfied and disenfranchised people, you know, that uh, this was the only way to voice their concern. And, you know, for me, that would be, that would be the main risk uh, that South Africa faces because we've got so much potential in this country and we all talk about it. We all talk about the untapped and the potential we can unlock. But uh, I believe that government is the main catalyst to do that. They can't do that on their own. They do need the support of business and of labor and of other kind of stakeholders. But I think you know, that's the trick, is for them to build those bridges uh, and you know, get South Africa working more together collectively for all stakeholders. Because uh, you know, in the last few years, we've been pulling, pulling each other apart. And as a consequence, we've been sort of tearing down rather than building up and creating the confidence and creating the foundation for, you know, for everybody to benefit. On the other end of the spectrum, what do you get most excited about? I think the, you know, it's the, it's the, um, that untapped potential. You know, South Africans are incredibly uh, optimistic, resilient. We're entrepreneurial. Uh, we, are, uh, we are used to dealing with challenges because if you look at how well uh, the country has done uh, despite you know uh, all the challenges that we've had, and despite the corruption and the incompetence and the male administration, uh, you know, so there's there, there's incredible, um, you know, I, th- I think there's an incredible incredible resilience here, and I think South Africans of all races are very proud of being South African, uh, and we want to help each other. You know, um, the work that uh, I think people do across, uh, you know, if you look at the work that the private sector is doing, you know, helping. Uh, trying to help with NGOs and charities and upliftment and social good, uh, you know, I think that that shows that people, you know, the sort of perception that uh, uh, we self-centered and you know there's racial divide and it's us versus them or rich versus poor, you know, it it just doesn't play out in the real world in South Africa. So there's so much potential that if we had the right environment, a conducive, constructive environment, I think that you know there's 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 no doubt in my mind that South Africa could grow at between 5 and 8% per annum for 10 years if we had the right enabling environment in place. Unfortunately, we haven't done that, but the potential exists. And there's many other countries where you'd say you couldn't do that. You know, you, ha- you don't have the infrastructure, you don't have the skills, you don't have the financial institutions. Uh, we have all of that. Um, so, 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 so there's enormous potential. So let's have a look from a broad global perspective and where you would be Upweighting your portfolio in 2022. If you sort of look at the globe, I mean, what's always interesting and, and, and marginally concerning is just how important the US is. Uh, you know, the US has been 50% plus um, of the global stock market for, for a few decades now. Uh, and the US only contributes, it's, contributes less than 25% to global GDP, but it contributes you know, more than double that to the stock market. Now, now that seems like a big dislocation. So often, when you're talking about, you know, where do you want to invest, you've got to say, well, do I want to be overweight or underweight in in the U.S.? Um, what is interesting about the U.S. and in their favor is that they've got uh, some of the biggest multinational companies in the world. So a lot of the the profits they're earning are, are not necessarily only in the U.S. You know, it used to be um, sort of the um, the global the global Procter and Gamble, some of the global you know, companies that were operating there, Walmart to a lesser extent. Uh, these days, it's obviously Google, Apple, Facebook, uh, 
Meta, etc. Um, so they, they, they're incredibly powerful, but we know the US has done well. It's done well economically and it's done well because of technology. But I think that, you know, the US is probably not going to be uh, as hot a market as it was. So I would tend to be a little bit underweight uh, in, in the US on a global basis. Uh, I think where the opportunities are going to lie, you know, China's a big call. And I know, you know, there's obviously, uh, you know, um, is China... Is it, is it going to be continue to be an investor unfriendly environment? Is the government still going to, you know, going to, going to continue clamping down on profit uh, and deciding you know, where, where sort of capital should be allocated, in which case you know, China isn't where you'd want to be? But if they sort of take their, their, their foot off the throttle, as in stop throttling, throttling those companies and entrepreneurial spirit, I think China's a very interesting one that, uh, that could bounce back. But it's kind of a little bit of a high risk a high-risk play, but I do think there are some interesting opportunities in China. It was also quite interesting to see Charlie Munger doubling down in Alibaba uh, in the last quarter of the year. Uh, so, so I think there is some interesting um, uh, opportunities over there. It's an interesting point that you raise there about some smart investors or insiders going bigger on China. Charlie Munger is an obvious example, but in the last few days, We've seen lots of coverage on Bob van Dijk from Process investing heavily into his own company, so buying shares in his company. I guess the first question is, uh, you know, you work for somebody else and you've got hundreds of millions of rands to invest. You've got to wonder uh, whether or not uh, shareholders will be happy that someone's become that wealthy by being part of the of the management team. But on the other hand, at least he is reinvesting in his own company might he be distracted by the excitement that he sees within process and may be forgetting that the major part of that business is actually Tencent and something over which he has absolutely no control? Yeah, you're right. Um, you know, I think it was over $125 million and one wonders where the money came from. But uh, <laughs> but as you say, the fact that he's reinvesting that, because he could, you know, he doesn't have to, he's under no obligation to do that. So he must, uh, and he's he's a staunch capitalist, so he must see an opportunity over there. Um, you know, you are right that uh, the major driver uh, of of uh, process and Nuspers being ten cents, he has no control over. So it could be a few things. He could be saying, you know, uh, ten cent, the underlying business is still doing well; it's still growing profits. Um, but obviously, the you know the long term outlook is not as good as it was, and there's much more uncertainty there. But uh, you know, I think probably Bob Van Dyke and many others believe that. Uh, that's more than reflected in the share price of Tencent. So, you know, that in itself is an attractive asset. Um, but what Bob van Dyke does have control over is, you know, uh, unlocking the discount uh, in b- between process and uh, and Tencent. And, you know, in a, in a way it's good because uh, by having so much of his own wealth invested in uh, process, then he he is aligned with shareholders, and then as much as other shareholders are upset that there's a wide discount, he should be as upset with that, and he has much more of an ability to influence it. So you know, I think that is a positive sign for Process and Nuspes uh, shareholders. Hopefully, he does something about it, because obviously, as we and many others have said over the last few years, all of the actions that uh, uh, that the uh, Process board and management have done in terms of selling down 10 cent and trying to narrow the discount, uh, you know, has not added any, uh, any value to shareholders. What about the sector that matters so much to South Africa resources? I was looking at some of the uh, performance tables for 2021. And one of the worst performing shares last year was Kumba, which was down 30%, lost a third of its value. You, you, have a similar situation in other resources stocks and quite a lot of negativity at the moment that the so-called super cycle that many people were excited about is, if not petering out, uh, it's just not going to happen. How are you viewing that? Now, I think that um, you know resources, typically it's generated by global growth and China has been the main engine of global growth. Um, so so you know, if we look at uh, the... Sort of global economy, uh, you know. As I think I've said said a bit earlier, I, I I think it's going to be quite a tough global economy, given how well um, uh, the the global economy, rather than the South African economy, did last year. You know, the enormous government uh, stimuluses and the money that was created, you know, created enormous amounts of uh, demand. There wasn't enough supply to meet that demand, 
um, you know, hence it was inflationary, but commodity prices were a, were an enormous beneficiary of that. So firstly, I don't think you, you know, you haven't got that pent up demand, that unexpected uh, demand. So I think, I think, uh, I think supply demand is going to be a little bit more, uh, more in sync. And then obviously you've got China, which is the the single biggest driver of commodity prices globally. And, you know, their economy has slowed down and they've got problems because of the enormous debt within the system. It's been, you know, a lot of that growth has been fueled by by debt. And we know the story with property and Evergrande, et cetera. And that's just, you know, symptomatic of a broader issue uh, within within China. So uh, I don't think you're going to have that level of growth. And commodities, unfortunately, it tends to be a boom and a bust. You either tend to do really well or, or really badly. Um, but I, you know, personally, I think there's still some room left in the commodities. I still think there's, you know, there's going to be enough demand for commodities for those uh, for those shares uh, to do to do well. Uh, in general, the commodity, the, res- the resource uh, companies have been better. They've been managing their capital much better. So in previous sort of boom cycles, they've got overexcited by the amount of money they're making and they've invested in quite poor projects you know that haven't delivered value and they've been much more responsible this time around clem santa who is south africa's denario planning doyen we've spoken many times over the years south africans know and love you clem and they they like looking to you to tell us what's in store for the year ahead and you've written a an excellent piece on biz news with the different flags explaining what we should be looking out for. We're starting off with the, the red flag. Reading your story, World War Three is not just the realm of science fiction. It's, it is something that uh, you tell us we need to be at least aware of. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, Alec, it's only been 100 years since we've had uh, two world wars. Uh, the First World War, 14 to 18, and then the Second World War, which started in 39. I mean, that's not so long ago. It's not like looking back into the Stone Ages or anything like that. And, and you know, particularly uh, the First World War came out of the blue with the assassination of an archduke. Uh, the Second World War, um, as again, we talk about in the book, Winston Churchill foresaw uh, the chances building up in the, in, in, in the 1930s. So to, to put a a, a kind of third world war uh, scenario on the table is, is not being totally, you know, impossible. Uh, it's, it's, it's actually saying we've, we've, we've had to, and there, there are certain issues now which could, through sort of accidental uh, a, a confrontation and emotion, uh, could emerge. And you put it on the table, obviously, so that it doesn't happen. <laughs> that's that's the the point of scenarios. In fact, a book was written in uh, the early 60s, uh, in fact, 1960, called On Thermonuclear War by Herman Kahn, who was the father of scenario planning. And that book played quite a role in America's thinking during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, because the book clearly showed the incredible destruction that could be caused by a nuclear war. And so in the end, uh, the scenario was avoided through diplomacy. And one hopes again that uh, in the case of the Ukraine, uh, that scenario can be avoided by diplomacy. But then, as I said, towards the end of the flag, there are other small (laughs) flags like North Korea that have to be continually watched because they do now possess nukes which can do an incredible amount of damage um, in in the region and of course they're still testing ballistic missiles having given up for a time because of the kind of agreement uh, reached between Trump and uh, Kim Jong-un. I'm not uh, not sure if this is a fair question to you but if there were to be uh, this apocalyptic uh, development and we were to enter a third world war what is south africa's position likely to be if any yeah it's it's a very tricky one that because uh we're certainly more in the middle than we were previously because we belong to BRICS, which is brazil russia india and china that is and and the s is us uh so 
you know, we're in the BRICS club uh, with Russia and China um, on the one hand. But of course, you know, we still consider Europe and America and the UK uh, strong allies on the other. So <laughs> it is a totally pertinent question, which is why you play the scenario in advance so you don't start making ill-considered decisions in the heat of the moment about which side you're going to join. But it absolutely is the right question to ask. And of course, a lot of people will heave a sigh of relief that we're at the, the, the bottommost tip of, of Africa if you know, really nasty uh, things happen uh, in Europe or between Russia and America in the north. So that's a big one. And I guess that uh, why it's relevant for us is that more and more South Africans are now investing globally and uh, their future is dependent on those investments. Well, one point I didn't make, but which has to be borne in mind, is that there is a third scenario, which is sanctions, that, that if Russia invades Ukraine, the, the, the West will slap incredible sanctions on Russia, including, um, you know, financial sanctions and trade sanctions. This could have an enormous impact on Europe, uh, where around about 30 or 40 percent of their energy comes out of Russia. Um, it, could, it could certainly jeopardize certain projects uh, like the new pipeline uh, into, into Germany. And so, you know, one of the other reasons for watching these talks is an intermediate scenario, not a nuclear conflict, but not a diplomatic solution, but one where sanctions are applied, which will obviously impact the global hmm. economy. The green flag? Yeah, well, the green flag, I've, I've said, is in, in existential terms, the most important flag, uh, because we, we have 8 billion uh, uh, people uh, in in the world today. The the UN um, currently is forecasting that it will be just over 10 billion by the end of this century. Uh, they are saying that uh, population growth uh, will have fallen to zero by then uh, because people are having less babies. Uh, so, you know, uh, it's uh, but it's created this problem right now where we are not only changing our atmosphere, and we all know how thin that atmosphere is with the recent flights uh, into, into space, uh, which have been uh, taken by ordinary individuals, um, showing just, you know, you go from this blueness of Earth into space in, the, in, in a minute. And, 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 you know, we are actually uh, changing that little thin layer of atmosphere in a way that's uh, very negative for the future of the planet. But equally, we're displacing um, an enormous number of wild animals and plants and other things on Earth. And there's been, for example, a huge fall in numbers of rhinos and elephants and, 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 other, uh, and other species. Um, and so it is an incredible issue because it's never occurred in any previous century. And it goes right against our natural DNA of, uh, of doing everything to improve material prosperity and economic growth. I mean, even the Chinese have ditched their one-child policy because they saw uh, the, the problems of developing into a middle-aged nation with uh, fewer and fewer young people coming through. And so they've ditched it. And so it is a really tough flag, uh, the green flag, to concentrate on now because we've got to do things which, you know, we're just unaccustomed to doing. And yes, hopefully technology, like with the pandemic, uh, in the form of vaccines, but technology in the form of renewable energy will come to the fore. But as I said in the book, we haven't even started in terms of the detailed analysis of each uh, chain in the link of all the new devices uh, that we're going to use, like electric cars, which use lithium batteries. Has anybody really looked at where we're going to get all the lithium from and what that's going to do to the environment and the places where the lithium is? 
And equally, if you, you read quite a few uh, scientific articles, they will say recycling lithium is very different to recycling glass or plastic or anything else. In fact, it's very dangerous. So I don't think we've even begun to, 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 to really understand uh, what we're going to have to do to A, protect our atmosphere and B, protect the diversity of living things on this. So earth. lots of flags to look out for there. Uh, you did mention the pandemic. I ran a piece this morning uh, from uh, Nobel Prize winner, Dr. Luke. He said that uh, with yes. Omicron or Omicron, uh, the whole idea of having mandatory vaccines is now obsolete because Omicron is yet another development. So at least on that front, it it looks positive. But as you say, we don't really know. Yeah, look, one has to say statistically, because in terms of pr- applying probabilities to scenarios, you look backwards to judge the statistics on an issue like are we going to have a more lethal variant coming along? And and certainly in previous uh, pandemics the world has had, it would appear that the, the virus becomes uh, milder uh, because it wants to continue to exist um, just like every other living thing. And, and so, you know, um, it well could be now that we're moving towards a kind of flu uh, scenario. Joining me is the director at the Center for Risk Analysis, uh, John Endress. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, I want to take us to a risk alert that came from the Center for Risk Analysis, looking at the volume one of the state capture inquiries uh, report that's come out recently. Um, what What is your immediate reaction to this a very voluminous document. Uh, what are some of the standout points? Let's start there. I think for me, one of the standout points, thank you, Mike, is that South Africa does occupy quite a special position in the sense that we have a very high degree of transparency into malfeasance in the public sector, but unfortunately it is not associated with an equally high degree of accountability and consequences for whatever misdeeds are identified. And I think that the state capture report really falls into the South African tradition. Uh, we know that over the past years, we've seen phenomenal work by our investigative journalists who have brought to light many, many uh, examples of corruption and corrupt activities in the government, but with very little to show for it in terms of prosecutions. And the Zondo Commission, I think, has given the imprimatur of a legal investigation of the uh, allegations of wrongdoing. And with that, I think, carries a lot of weight, uh, maybe even more weight than uh, the, the journalist investigations would have done. But ultimately, there weren't that many really new or novel revelations in the report. I think much of what is contained in it was in the public domain already. Uh, but it now you know, seems a lot more substantial and also substantive. You know, it's an over 800-page report, and that is only page one. Uh, sorry, part one. And uh, yeah, I'm sure there's going to be lots more to come in parts two and three, which we also look forward to with uh, great expectations, I think. Yeah, John, and it's also a learning process. Uh, So I sat at the state capture inquiry for almost two years, and the, the South African public needs to be educated about what these commissions of inquiry uh, can actually do. A, a lot of people were questioning why are there not arrests after somebody testifies on the stand and is a very poor witness. Uh, but of course, that is an inquisitorial process and not an adversarial process as a court of law. There is a distinction that needs to be made there. So there is value for the South African public out of this sort of a document. But how do you think the ANC has handled it in in the wake of the release of this report? Well, again, um, I think most most of the revelations were known already. Um, the expectation, I think, on the part of the public is that consequences should now follow um, at some stage, at some speed. We should be seeing some uh, seeing some prosecutions, uh, you know, some court proceedings, maybe some uh, convictions, and maybe some punishment. But already, Guido Montasha, I think, was quick to cast cold water on those hopes by saying that the report should really be used to assist the ANC in its renewal 
and helping it to learn from its mistakes of the past uh, and trying to clear, create a very clear distinction between the old ANC that did all these terrible things and the new ANC that's starting today is going to turn over a new leaf and uh, be a much better organization, which of course it also needs to be if it wants to improve its electoral fortunes, which really uh, declined quite severely in the local government elections last year. The question is how much credence one can put in uh, Guido Montache's words and also those of his colleagues. I think um, it certainly is their preference for the report not to be used in a prosecutorial sense. Um, and I think that they are going to make a big effort to ensure that that is the case. Um, and I also think that they do actually hold most of the Trump cards and will be able to delay, postpone, drag out, dilute attention to such an extent that most of the people fingered in the report will be able to um, escape consequences. I mean, it's ludicrous. What was the point of of the state capture inquiry if, we, if it wasn't to help to clean out the rot within society, within government, within the within the private sector? And the ANC, of course, falls within that. If you go through an entire one billion rand process and all that happens is it helps to unify the party, that's not the purpose of, of an inquiry of this form. But it, it would appear that it, it sort of falls within the notion that the ANC loves the notion of collective responsibility. I remember after their, their, their poor showing in the local government elections, nobody ever wanted to point the finger at former President Jacob Zuma for their decline in electoral results. They said, we as the NEC, we as a party will take collective responsibility, except you can't put the party on trial. Individuals need to be singled out and need to stand in the dock. Speaking of standing in the dock, is our National Prosecuting Authority capacitated, resourced to be able to handle the prosecutions that should at least stem from a document like this uh, Volume 1 report? Well, I think it is certainly not equipped with sufficient resources to investigate everything contained in the report. Um, I think the allegations are so vast and so far-reaching that it would take a vastly larger agency to investigate all of them. But I certainly think it would be able to focus on a few high-profile cases and try to um, achieve some results in those cases. But we have seen a great reluctance, I think, on the part of the NPA to handle politically sensitive cases. Um, and unfortunately, that has been uh, part of its history for a long time, part of its DNA. Um, I think Sean Abrams was the predecessor of the, the incumbent uh, as the director, the national director of public prosecutions, who was who gained a reputation, I think, for being quite inactive and not really getting much done. Uh, high expectations, I think, uh, were created when the current incumbent, Shamila Batoy, took over office. But sadly, those have also not come to very much. As a matter of fact, I believe that the budget allocation for the NPA was reduced uh, in the latest uh, um, budget speech. And uh, it uh, is really not, not, not a very strong sign that there is great appetite to capacitate the NPA and put it in a position where it is able to prosecute independently, fearlessly and effectively. As part of your, your risk alert as the CRA, you've mentioned there that you're not entirely convinced that there's going to be an overwhelming change, at least from a political point of view, in the wake of, of this report, because a critical mass of the leadership of the governing party, the ANC, is involved in that, that dubious network that is being fingered here. Is that, is that, is that in a nutshell what you're saying? They're not going to act as their own jailers yet. It's not, there's no incentive for them to do that. Yeah, I think it would be hugely dangerous for the ANC to really um, endorse and encourage prosecutions because so many of its own leading figures would be identified and targeted. Um, and it would, you know, decimate the top leadership of the party. Uh, it would cause a great, um, I think, unraveling of whatever unity remains there as various parties would start uh, uh, pointing fingers at each other uh, and trying to prevent, save their own skins by um, pointing out the misdeeds of their colleagues. We did a, an analysis last year on the NEC, um, the ANC's top decision-making body, which has, I think, 80 ordinary members, and found that 41 of those members were uh, accused in the media of being involved in corrupt activity serious enough to warrant a jail sentence. So it's over half of the NEC. And you can imagine that in that situation, 
for anybody to take an active move on corruption would just be unpalatable and I think far too difficult to do. So my hopes uh, that we will see any consequences arising out of the Zondo Commission's investigations or coming from the NPA are unfortunately quite low. Yeah, Alec has a saying, it would be akin to Turkey's voting for Christmas, um, which I think is, is quite nice. Uh, you also mention, quote-unquote, the grand theatre of the state capture report and how it diverts attention away from current corruption and malfeasance and shenanigans going on. There's a kind of a belief, and the media uh, is responsible for this. When Ramaphosa came in, it was the new dawn. There was Ramaphoria, and it helped to be able to point the finger at the old um, administration under former President Jacob Zuma to say those were the guys that were corrupt and that were responsible for malfeasance. But we are new. We're the new broom sweeping clean has it done that? Has the new administration done that? No, I can't really say that it does. Um, you do see a, a couple of commentators here and there uh, picking out some examples of uh, a little bit of prosecutions here and there. But I think really it is grand theatre. Um, it is designed to distract the attention of the public and also of the media to make us believe that something is happening, uh, while in reality the corruption is ongoing um, and really has not, not, not declined very much. I'm Joshua Roberts of Biz News, and with me today is Corian Capital Chief Investment Officer David Bacher. Corian publishes an informative summary of asset class and fund performance returns every month, which is suitable for any level of investor. The report can be found on Corian Capital's website or biznews.com. David, let's have a look at 2021 before we look forward. A great year for most asset classes, particularly equities. What are your high-level remarks of 2021 and how does it compare to any other regular year in the markets? Thanks, Justin. I think from our perspective at Corian, the best indication how the man on the street did in terms of investments is, is generally through his investment through his retirement fund. And a retirement fund is not just about equities. It's a mixture of different asset classes, mostly equities, uh, but it has bonds, it has offshore investments, it has ca cash, and it has to, because of legislation, it needs to be a diversified portfolio. So we like to look at the high equity space where um, those unit trusts are for long-term retirement funds. And the average return that a high equity unit trust did, and, and that's over 100 unit trusts, was just over 20%, which considering inflation is about 5 and considering the, the next best return from that high equity category was in 2006. It was an exceptional year for investors uh, and for people's general wealth to, to improve. Which were the best performing high equity funds in 2021? It was quite an interesting year in that, uh, especially in the South African context, you usually have a, you know almost a, a bang-bust kind of scenario where you know, resources are either shooting the lights out because the RANDs are weakening and at the expense of maybe financials or vice versa. This year, it was very different. Um, the all share index was close to 29% to return and basic materials did outperform with, with you know, low 30% uh, percent returns. But financials were up 28%. Industrials were up 24%. So it was a case of most major equity sectors rising. So, you know, unlike previous years where we look at the best unit trusts, it was generally those who were very heavily weighted in financials or very weighted in basic materials. That wasn't the what happened last year. So, you know, if I look at the winners, and, and maybe I'll touch on that a little bit later, I think what did stand out uh, last year was small caps. Um, that the small cap industry after many years of really lagging, was up over 50%. And I think those funds that didn't have exposure to NASPAS and Process, which is a big weighting in the all-share index, uh, they, uh, NASPAS and Process had, had a tough year and being a big counter in the market. If you were biased towards small caps and didn't have exposure to, to NASPAS and, and Process, you, know, you would have had a very good year last year. Um, so, you know, if you look at the, the best performing funds, uh, it was those funds that, that really were positioned that way. We're talking about 
Pitt for Young's counterpoint, which when I looked at the the best performing funds in the various categories, they actually were the top performing in, in two categories, low equity, unit trust, and, and global. So it's very uh, very seldom that you get uh, best performers in two very different categories. Um, Walter Aylert and, and co had, had a very good year. Um, and those were those funds that were positioned, uh, as I said, biased towards value, small caps, and very little exposure to, to, to NASPAS process. At the end of the report, Corian publishes its own array of funds performance. The equity-mandated funds perform particularly well. What does the investment process look like for the team at Corian? We've done things a bit differently with our equity fund. Um, so most people, most um, companies that follow a multi-management approach mix different strategies and funds together. What we've done uh, at Corian is actually blend different managers' best ideas. And we've left uh, a large part of the portfolio construction and the risk management to ourselves. Um, and in, in that way, we're trying to get the best ideas from, from very clever managers. And fortunately, our managers, such as Andrew Vincent from, from Klukas Gray, had an exceptional year. Uh, a lot of the small caps or less favored stocks of 2020, he invested in at the right time. Um, and, and that was the reason why Corian as a house uh, was fortunate to, to have a very, very good year. We're just over a week into 2022, and we've seen some significant drawdowns in the U.S., particularly in the tech sector. JSC has held firm predominantly because of the value bias inherent on the local bias. But do you expect more of the same in this growth-to-value rotation we're seeing at the moment, given that all the economic indicators, inflation, interest rate direction, et cetera, are pointing towards it? I think it's going to be a very interesting year. And what, what was quite defining last year was if you looked at the U.S. Treasuries and the, the 30-year U.S. Treasuries. Now, U.S. Treasuries uh, and bonds generally are a better indicator of what's happening out there than the equity market. If you look at all previous equity markets, bear markets, the bond market tends to be a better indicator. And last week was the worst weekly total return of the 30-year Treasury in almost 50 years. And that's quite striking. It lost about 9%. Um, so, you know, the, at Corian, that, that could be a, a big sign that, you know, uh, the, the lights are going amber to red at the moment. Um, and it's an indication that, you know, rates are probably going to go a bit quicker, higher than people expected. And this wall of money, uh, which was filled by the Fed, quantitative easing, low interest rates, that's coming to an end. And what happens generally in that kind of environment, the stocks, the momentum stocks, the growth stocks, where you rely on low discount rates and they're generally pricing great expectations going forward, they, that does struggle. So from a current perspective, we certainly not overweight equities and we certainly do have a bias towards value kind of shares, uh, not just South Africa and globally, which tend to perform better in that kind of environment. David, just to back up what you've just said, all the portfolio managers I have chatted to in the last two or three weeks sort of concur with what you're saying. Is there any way for us to hide as investors? What are the safe havens to look forward to in 2022? Well, I think you never want to go, you know, all in or all out. Uh, market timing is very difficult. Um, generally, asset classes rise over time. So if you uh, go too conservative uh, for too long, you generally underperform. Um, so, you know, I think don't don't uh, go get too scared and, and get, get get totally disinvested. Um, but I do think it's a time to have a bit of your portfolio in more conservative um, assets. Uh, and things like cash is, is not such a bad investment because if you have cash and, you, and, and the proverbial rainy day arrives, you know, to invest that at lower lower prices um, is, always, is always a good thing. So I would just maybe lighten up on equities, have a little bit more cash in your portfolios, um, and don't get too greedy because it has been a good period for investors. 
Well, thanks for being with us today on the 11th of January. We look forward to being back in your company tomorrow, same time, same place. Until then, from the Biz News team, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.